The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. morning. There we go. There's the lights. I was going to say, got to turn the lights up. It's too easy to fall asleep anyway when you're going to church listening to a preacher. Um, man, what a week. Kind of a bummer week, right? Summer solstice here and gone. It's already starting to get darker in our city. <laughs> Dear God, help us. Brutal. Uh, this morning is um, a wrap-up, kind of a final, final word on the book of Ruth, the subversive story of Ruth's Hesed love for her mother-in-law, Naomi, and then Boaz's love for both of them. Um, we wanted to kind of end, we started this at our, the, the end of our last series, the Renewal series, um, with a Q&R Sunday a time of question and response where we hear from you. So we asked you to submit questions, offer thoughts um, about what you were learning, feedback. And one of the things about leadership that's really important, every good leader will tell you, is that you have to be able to do what's called mid-course correcting. Um, So that's what's happening this morning. We didn't get a lot of questions, to be honest. Um, And that's okay. I don't say that to shame you or to bum you out. We're going, to, we're going to continue to do these because we want to create a culture where you're a part of the process of learning. You're not just um, mind receptacles that are just receiving information, but that you're engaging in the content by asking questions, uh, sharing your thoughts on what you're learning. And so this morning, we're mid-course correcting a bit, and we're going to go a little bit of a different direction, but we're still going to try to tie up the book of Ruth And then we're also going to look forward to our next series. That's one of the things that we wanted these Sundays in between series to do, is to be kind of a transition where we look back at what we've learned about the Hesed love of Ruth, and we look forward to our next series, which is going to be in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We're going to spend eight weeks in Ephesians 4. The first couple of weeks, Oshawa will, will walk through kind of a recap of the first three chapters of Ephesians, and then the six weeks after... We're going to walk through verse by verse Ephesians 4, a book um, all about the local church. So this morning, two goals for us. First is to help us understand what it will take for you and I to become the kind of people for which practicing Hesed love or subversive kindness, uh, a love and a commitment to others that goes above and beyond what is asked or expected of us, that honors the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law, right? How do we actually become people for whom that is the normal mode of operation? Not just that we once in a while practice a generous, kind gesture towards someone else when we're reminded of it at church and then we forget about it, but that we become the kind of people for whom it is normal to desire on a regular basis to practice Hesed kindness towards others. Okay, so how do we do that? That's the first thing I hope that we can look at this morning. And then secondly, I want us to look forward 
to what it will take for us to practice the beautiful picture of the church that we're going to be looking at for the next eight weeks in Ephesians 4. Uh, Ephesians 1 through 3, the first three chapters of the six chapter book, Paul's, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is all about kind of a, here's what God has done for you, a theology statement, it's a lot of doctrine, it's rich, it's deep, it's beautiful, and then the second three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are, here's how that theology looks like when it's lived out. So that's what we're going to be looking at in Ephesians 4, and I want us to be able to figure out how do we begin to practice what we're going to look at and learn in Ephesians chapter 4. So we're going to spend some time this morning doing something a little different. We're going to look at two different clips. We're going to watch two clips from John Mark Comer. He's a local pastor here in Portland, Oregon, Bridgetown Church. Um, It's good every once in a while to do something a little bit different, right? Shakes us up. Gets us out of our normal rhythm. That's okay. So, in these two clips, he's going to be talking about spiritual formation. Or, if you'd like, another word that we've used, that Christians have used for decades, sanctification. Or, if you like, how do I become like Jesus? As I apprentice him, as I learn about him, as I read my Bible, what other things must I do in order to actually live like Jesus lived? I think John Mark Comer, personally for me, has impacted me greatly. He's one of the best voices we have in Christianity today. Not the magazine. (laughs) Ha! Um, I think he's one of the best voices we have on the topic of spiritual formation or becoming like Jesus. And so if you're wondering, why am I going to watch another pastor from another church at my church? Good question. It's good for us to hear voices from other churches, especially ones that are literally just down the street from us, a few miles from here. A really influential leader, one that I think has affected many of our leaders here on staff and our elder team, Um, a voice that's really prophetic, I think, today about what it looks like to follow Jesus in the Western world. Also, I think it's good for us to do something every once in a while, like I said earlier, that's outside of our normal rhythm. So we're going to do that. And these clips aren't super long. Two clips, about 18 minutes total. So both of these clips, like I said, are taken from a a sermon, the same sermon where Comer preaches on spiritual formation, how we become like Jesus. And so what I want us to do is to consider this question as we're watching these clips. Think back to the book of Ruth, remembering that incredible subversive love that we see between Ruth and Naomi Naomi and and Ruth, Boaz and Ruth, and so on. Think back to that love that goes above and beyond, that honors the spirit of the law, and ask yourself, how do I become a person who naturally wants, desires to show hesed love towards others? How do I actually become that kind of person? So with that, we're going to start with the first clip called Two Myths of Spiritual Formation by Comer. Two myths that I just want to take a moment to call out. The first myth is this, that all you really need to do is know the Bible. All you really need to do is just like, 
know the Bible. And so we read the Bible and we study the Bible and memorize the Bible and we write books about the Bible and we talk about the Bible and you all know me, so please don't misread me. I'm a huge fan of all of that. But here's the problem. We have been so deeply shaped by Western European history. So you have the Protestant Reformation, if you know about that, a few hundred years ago. You have Martin Luther, who's a great example, great leader in that movement. His theory of what he called sanctification at the time, which was kind of an old school way of saying spiritual formation, of how we change to become like Jesus was twofold. He said we change through what he called the preaching of the gospel, and for Luther that was a sermon, so kind of evangelism and Bible teaching in his mind, and through the sacraments. He was still essentially Catholic in his view of the bread and the cup. And so for Luther, and a whole, he's just a great architect, a whole bunch of other people from that era, the way that we change is you come to church on Sunday, you hear the preaching, you hear the sermon or whatever, you take the bread, you take the cup, you do that over time and you're changed. Now, fast forward a few hundred years, you get to America, evangelicalism comes along that we're kind of the grandchild of and essentially says goodbye to the sacraments. So right or wrong, this is a whole other teaching. Most followers of Jesus in America has a very low view of the body and the blood and the plastic cup really does not help on that front. And so you're essentially left with the sermon. It's why you have so many church models that are essentially built around that 40 minute block at the right at the middle of everything. That's kind of what the whole church is about. But it's not just that, really more, more than the Reformation, more than all of that, the greatest effect was really enlightenment, which most of you know has had just a massive effect on Western European consciousness. And you know, of course you have the French philosopher Rene Descartes' famous line, I think therefore I what? Am, I think, therefore I am. He called human beings res cogitans in Latin or thinking things in English. His view of what it means to be human has shaped our Western world and the way we approach church and discipleship in the West. The problem is basically everybody now says the dude was smart, but he was wrong. If he was right, if this view of what it means to be human was true, then we could just think something, know it in our head, and then go do it. Easy as that. How's that working for you? We could just read a book on health food and never eat sugar or dairy or meat again. It'd be really easy. We could just read a little teaching from Jesus about loving our enemy and be like, cool, got it, great, thank you. We could just read a little thing on you know, anxiety and don't worry, don't worry. What a great idea, okay. <laughs> Let's not worry this week. The problem is that knowing something is not the same as doing it, which is still not the same as wanting to do it. Am I right? So a lot of stuff that you know, a lot of stuff that I know that I don't do, and frankly, I don't even want to do, even though I know it's right. So there's a way deeper problem here than the brain. What this means for our apprenticeship to Jesus, and this is a key idea for us tonight, is that we can't think our way to Christ-likeness. And the mind is essential, thought, we'll get into that, but just bear with me, you can't think your way to Christ-likeness because the way of Jesus is a way. It's not just a set of ideas, it is a way of life. Our problem is that, as a general rule, even in the most anti-intellectual churches in the US, and it's not a slam, but it's just how it is, our approach to discipleship is usually a solely intellectual endeavor. 
Now, by intellectual, I don't mean it's heady and only for the educated people in the church. I mean that it's solely through the mind and the imagination. It's all about information transfer. So it's, hey, you want to grow and mature in Jesus? Come to Bible study on Wednesday night or get with your small group, read this book, and have discussion questions or meet with your mentor for coffee every Thursday morning, work through this curriculum from the navigators on basic doctrine of Christianity or whatever. That's all great stuff. Don't misread me. I'm not down on any of it. But hopefully you all know this. Information transfer alone does not yield transformation. It is a false assumption to think as your knowledge of the Bible goes up, your Christ-likeness will go up with it. That might happen. That's the goal, but not necessarily. There's way more going on. So that's the first myth. All you need to do is know the Bible. Second myth, and that first one is more if you come from a, I don't know, reform background or Bible church background or just you have no church background but you're wired more intellectual or education or whatever. This one is a little bit more if you come out of a Pentecostal background or charismatic background or an artistic background, and it's this. You don't need to do anything. It's all God. So the famous cliche that gave rise to this is let go and what? Let God. That is such bad theology. I don't even know where to start. There's actually a tagline from the Keswick Convention. There's a whole history there. Let go and let God. I call it like the matrix theory of spiritual formation. Remember matrix? Come on. It's no Star Wars, obviously, but it's really good. You remember like the, tr like the download thing? Trinity here. I need a, what was it like? I need a pilot program for a B-12 helicopter. It's like, mm, got it. And now she's a pilot. Yeah. That's so cool in a movie. That's not how apprenticeship to Jesus works. I wish it was like, hey Jesus, I need a download for peace. Got it. Uh. <laughs> hey Jesus, uh, download patience, my seven-year-old. Holy, got it. Hi. <laughs> like Jesus, I just need a download for freedom from the addiction to, yeah, I don't even want that anymore. No, I'm good. Like, oh, that would be so cool. Unfortunately, it is absolute fantasy. I love that saying, it's one of the few cliches that I really like, without him we can't, but without us he won't. Without him we can't, without us he won't. Change, transformation is a joint effort between you and God. God has a part and you have a part. God has a responsibility and a role to play and so do you and I. And if that makes you nervous, um, I love Dallas Willard's line about how grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. So often we confuse the two. I have a 10-year-old son I love who every day I make him practice the piano in the afternoon, whether he wants to or not, and he's kinda into music, so it's usually okay. But I don't make him practice the piano to earn my love. He has my love. Like, I love that kid too much, if anything. Make him practice the piano because my love will not make him into a really good rock star. I mean, musician, I mean, piano player, whatever. Like for that, like he has a responsibility. He has a part to play to become the man that I think God created him to be. All that to say, we have to partner with God. He has a part and so do we. Not bad, huh? See, I could have just said, you should go listen to this sermon, and five of you would have done it, and now you all had to do it. There you go. So if you were to identify one of the two myths and say, which one of these most probably applies? Can we just turn the, the lights all the way up? There'll be a minute before I... If you had to identify which, which of the two do you think that central Bible 
has been prone to believe, which would it be? Two or one? One. Sounds like mostly ones. I think I'd agree. You know, I mean, don't you folks ever read your Bibles? Right? The myth that if we just read and study enough, we'll naturally become like Jesus. We'll desire what he desires, we'll do what he, what he did, and so on. And so we think if, if, if I want to grow in Christ-likeness, I should go to Bible study, I should go to Sunday school, etc., etc. I don't think, though, that the only reason, one of the things that Comer talks about is the, the Reformation, right, and Luther, you know, this, this value on coming to church, hearing the sermon, sitting under the preached word, taking the cup, the bread, and, and enjoying communion, right? the sacraments, and that if we do that over time, we'll begin to be formed and shaped into the image of Jesus. And I think that there is definitely, for sure, some truth in that, 100%. You do anything habitually, and you become like the things that you do. However, I don't think that's the only reason that spiritual formation has been so dominant in this way, this idea of reading the Bible. I don't think that the only reason it's been so dominant is because of the Enlightenment. I think that's a big part of it for sure, but I think another part of the reason this way of thinking about how we become like Jesus has been so popular and has prevailed in the last century is in part because most of us spend very little time reading the Bible. And so I think pastors and leaders have moved the goalpost from wholeness, a real true deep wholeness in Christ, of really becoming like Jesus, to can I just get you to read your Bible once in a while? Right? Honestly, I think that's a big part of it. And the, and the reason that that's become more and more popular is because we live in a more and more distracted culture every day. There's more things to hold us back, to take our time, to suck our energy. And I think that, to be honest, we just moved the goalpost a lot closer and said, if I can just get you to read the Bible once a week at Bible study, that's a win. And I think there's some truth to that, but I think that we need to expect more of one another that Jesus has more for us. And it's not just read your Bible every day, right? That's why our, at our home communities, um, we, we don't say we're going to have every home community, if you meet on Thursday nights, you're going to read your Bibles 52 nights of the year, 52 weeks of the year at your home community. That will be some of what we do together in those communities. But I think that there's more than just understanding the Bible that's separating us from becoming like Jesus. There are other practices or spiritual disciplines that are vital to incorporate into our lives that help us to become like him. So think about that question again. How do I become a person who naturally desires to practice Hesed love like we see in the book of Ruth? I think if we're being honest, most of us would admit that going above and beyond or honoring the spirit of the law, showing Hesed love in our relationships with family members, or total strangers is not our modus operandi or our normal way of being, right? We don't naturally desire that, but why? Why is that the case? Shouldn't, shouldn't it be the case? If I've read the Bible, if I understand the stories well, if I have good teaching and doctrine, why don't I just want to do it? Again, you have to be honest with yourself. Am I really the kind of person that is good at practicing this? Or do I have to kind of do it once in a while when I'm reminded of it? I think the reason why is there, is there really anyone who's been a part of the church for any period of time 
who can say, you know, I just didn't know I was supposed to live that way. I came to church, I studied the Bible, I heard from the preacher, now I know, and voila, now I want to do it. That's all there is to it. I am the most hessed person outside of Jesus now. Simply just needed to learn about it. That's all I was missing. Of course, that's not how it works, though. There's something more to becoming like Yahweh than an intellectual assent. So this is why we're going to practice hesed kindness in that announcement you just heard Marissa give. Looking forward to next week, after the service, we're going to break pizza bread together as a church, drink some good LaCroix or spicy water, as my four-year-old calls it, and then we're going to go out and we're going to pray. We're going to walk the streets of the neighborhood just around Central Bible picking up trash, and we're going to pray for, for apartment complexes and for homes, and we're going to invite, you know, if we see a stranger, we're going to introduce ourselves and maybe even offer to pray for them. Um, Asha was going to be giving an announcement at the end of the service today about that, leading a group of people who will go door to door, maybe and even ask if others would like to receive prayer. This is one way that we can begin to practice Hesed love. It's simple. It's not, it's not complete by any means. There's other things like solitude, prayer, starting your day without taking the first, you know, you don't spend two hours on your phone to start your day or 45 minutes laying in bed, reading emails, looking at Instagram. I've never done that before, ever. But you actually start your day with Jesus and spending time in God's presence Asking him to help you become the kind of person who would practice Hesed love. Asking him to show you, God, what are the opportunities that you're giving me? Just like you gave Ruth, just like you gave Naomi, just like you gave Boaz, who then paid attention, was looking for where you were moving, and then seizing the opportunities that they saw as God was moving. Would you give me those kinds of opportunities? You spend an hour, like I said last week, you spend 45 minutes, 30 minutes even, at the beginning of your day, Asking God for you to show you where those opportunities are, I promise you, you will see more opportunities than if you hadn't done that. So, that's one example of how we're going to, together, begin to practice Hesed love. I love that quote from Dallas Willard, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. To become a person who is known to practice Hesed towards your family members towards your extended family or your in-laws, or total strangers. In order to become that kind of person, is all you have to do is just pray and ask God, and that's it? No. He may give you a moment, right? Maybe just a, a brief moment of after praying for, you know, God, help me become like this, or help me to practice hesed, you know, download, boom, I got it. You might get it for 30 seconds, and then what happens? it goes away, and you're back to just regular old you, which isn't all that impressive if you're anything like me. Now, how do you become the kind of person who not only chooses to show it, but also wants, just naturally wants to do that? And for that, I wanna look at another video here by Comer where he addresses the actual process. What is the process by which I become spiritually formed into the image of Jesus? So with that, Let's look at this second clip called Intentional Spiritual Formation.
we call this intentional spiritual formation. This is our apprenticeship to Jesus. This is you wake up tomorrow morning and you follow after your rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. And all of this is counter formation, meaning it's all designed to offset kind of the overwhelming tide of life in our city. So counter the stories that we believe is teaching. This is where teaching, what we're doing right now and reading the Bible tomorrow morning, reading a book about the Bible or the way of Jesus, it has a vital role to play. So don't misread me. We're not down on it. We're all for it. It's what I give the bulk of my life to. We just don't think it's enough all by itself. But the best kind of teaching does more than just tell you right from wrong. It gets into your head with a vision of the good life. It undermines the stories that you believe that are not true. It says, that's not, that's not true. That's a lie. And this is the real true story of reality. That's why so many of Jesus' teachings did not even have a command. There's no like moral to the story. There's no like three things to work on in the coming week. He would just tell a story about the way the world actually works. Hey, the last are first. Is that a command? No. I mean, there's an implicit kind of, yeah, this is a great way to live. He's just saying that's the way the world actually works. That's real true story. And this is where the classic text, of course, on this is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Do not be conformed to the world, but be what? Transformed. There's that word, by the what? Renewing of your mind. If you've never read that, go read it. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. And so this is where teaching, church on Sunday, reading a good book, a class, all of that plays a vital role in our transformation. But teaching, getting right ideas into our head, is only the beginning. Next, counter the habits that we live into is practice. So two weeks ago, um, we read from the Sermon on the Mount. If you were here, we made the point, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is Jesus kind of manifesto for how to live as an apprentice in the new reality of the kingdom of God. And we pointed out that Jesus begins and ends the Sermon on the Mount with this idea of practice. So for Jesus, this whole vision of how to be human is fantastic, but Jesus just assumes it will take a lifetime of practice in community. You're not gonna like, love your enemy, cool, got it, no problem. Don't worry, yeah, that was great, I have it down. No, it's going to take a lifetime of practice, not alone, but with other apprentices of Jesus in your life. We said that it's not about trying really hard, but about training really hard. So we use that marathon analogy, you remember that? Yep, here's another one, if it's at all helpful. Um, every day, as I said, I make my son Jude practice the piano. What would, happen, what would happen if tomorrow afternoon I said to Jude, hey Jude, I want you to play Mozart, Requiem in D minor. He's 10, by the way. He's good, but he's not anywhere close to that, you know? And Jude, like, I want, how daddy, it's overwhelming, I don't know. And I just said, try really hard, really extra. And what if I like started to pray over Jude, Holy Spirit, come, like I just, like maybe that would work if there was a miracle, but then in order for him to play it again, he would need another miracle and another miracle and another miracle. No, how, how does Jude play Mozart Requiem in D minor? By trying really hard? No, by training really hard, by practice. Every afternoon at 3.30 for half an hour, whether you want to or not, bro, you're in my house, bro, whatever, son. <laughs> Millennial parent moment. Um, you're in my house, like I believe in you, whatever through practice. And a year goes by, and two years go by, and 10 years go by, and guess what? He becomes the kind of person for whom playing Mozart is hard, it will always be hard, but it's well within his capacity as a musician. So it's not that Jude can't play Mozart, it's that he can't play it yet. And this is how we need to approach our apprenticeship to Jesus. It's not that you can't live a life free from worry or anxiety or lust or greed, it's that you can't live that way yet. 
because it takes a lifetime of practice in community. The practices of Jesus, or what are usually called the spiritual disciplines, do something very specific. They get in at a subconscious limbic system level to your heart, your orientation to the world, and they rehabituate our loves and our longings. They change the orientation of our heart, our desires and our dreams, our attitude and our affection. Third, in place of relationships is community. What's the difference? Well, relationships we, for the most part, self-select based on preference, and that's not bad. Community are more kind of the other followers in Jesus that we inherit because they live in our neighborhood and go to Bridgetown or our family of origin or whatever. They're people that we make a decision to follow Jesus alongside because we can't follow Jesus alone. You all know that, right? You can't follow Jesus alone. I don't care about, but I'm the exception. No, nobody is the exception. Like, you can't, and neither can I. Jesus did not have a disciple. He had disciples, and there was a reason for that. Transformation, change, it happens in the context of community because community does two beautiful things to us. It does exposure and encouragement. Exposure, it shows, it's like kind of the squeezing of a sponge. It shows what's actually inside of you. Community brings out the best in us and the worst in us, whether that's a marriage or a Bridgetown community or a close friendship or a roommate, best in you and the worst, you exposure. But a healthy community, a Jesus kind of community, also does encouragement. That spouse, that community member, that friend says, listen, I love you, and that was lame, but I see who you are becoming in Jesus, and I say yes to that, and I'm with you for the journey, and let me help you, let me pray you. Exposure and encouragement. And honestly, living in community is hard. I get it from experience and my own life. We'll talk about that openly and honestly in a few weeks, but it is so worth it, and it's mandatory if you want to experience transformation. Next, in place of our environment is the Holy Spirit, and just stay with me. Think of everything I said last week about abiding, The goal is that, here's the end goal, that the Holy Spirit becomes our dominant reality and environment, more than our city, more than our phone, that practicing the presence of God becomes the first and primary way that we experience life on planet Earth. And that is, as we said last week, the baseline for all transformation. As Paul said in Galatians 5, walk in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Out of that is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, all of this happens over time. We don't become like Jesus in a year or two. It's not like, oh, we have this new Bridgetown program. It's six months long. Become like Jesus. Great, go through it. Have you been through that? Oh, you're not like Jesus? Go through it. Like, there's no killer app. There's no silver bullet. There's no quick fix. And this needs to be said in an age of the microwave and FedEx and text message and Wi-Fi and everything, the world at your fingertips, you still can't microwave character. You can't overnight it. You can't instant message Christ-likeness. All you can do is grow it like a tree, like takes not a year or two, but a decade or three or four. And that's not a bad thing. That's how the whole thing was set up. It all happens over time, and it happens through the hard knocks of life, in the words of Jay-Z, the prophet of our day. (laughs) Whether you are a disciple of Jesus or not, life, as we all know, is not easy. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, the most hard, difficult, gut-wrenching moments, and some of you are in them right now, can become a catalyst to shape you into the image of Jesus. I say can become because a lot of people go through hardship and just become bitter and torn out of shape and angry at God and everybody else and dysfunctional. So much of it has to do with whether or not you follow Jesus through that hardship 
to the other side. The classic text on this is James 1. Most of you recognize this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Over and over, the writers of the Old and the New Testament make the point that it's the very moments that we run away from, in particular in the West, where our entire society is built around life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We avoid suffering, hardship, pain at all costs. Our Western secular worldview has no redemptive edge at all to suffering. At best, it's an interruption. At worst, it's a permanent obstacle to the meaning of life. So all we do, all we can offer people other than a little bit of self-help therapy is escapism, distraction. Here's a bottle, here's a video game, here's a Netflix show, here's sex, here's a new house, here's more hours in your career. All we can offer in Western secular society is distraction. But it's the very moments that we run away from that have the potential to catalyze change and transformation in you and in me into the way of Jesus, to incubate our apprenticeship. So how do we change to become more like Jesus? Through teaching, through practice, through community, and by the Holy Spirit. All of this happens over time and through the hard knocks of life. All right. So that's kind of a, a paradigm for how we think about uh, practicing the way of Jesus or how we become like him. I love that analogy that he gives about his son being able to play Mozart. Obviously, at 10 years old, it's impossible, right? But it's not, it's only impossible right now. It's not that it's impossible forever. He can become the kind of person in 10 or 20 years for whom playing Mozart is, like he said, difficult, not easy, but with, well within his realm of skill. I... You know, my version of that illustration would be asking my four-year-old Eva, who's been in gymnastics for uh, about a year, maybe a year and a half now, to go do like a double somersault off of the springboard thing and, and then stick it perfectly, right? I have no idea what any of it's called. I'm sorry. <laughs> Amy, where's Amy? Vault. Do the vault. Double, summer, double, double somersault, stick it perfectly. You can't bounce after, right? You know how they sometimes hop, none of that. You gotta land, stick it, right? It's like not only can she not do that, it would be dangerous for her to try. How many of us are like that? Like, we think, okay, I've just read this passage on do not worry, right? Don't be anxious for anything. Okay, for the rest of the day, I'm not gonna be anxious, I'm just now, just, I'm just going to choose not to be anxious. And it's like, it's brutal because the whole day, it's like every time we feel that feeling of fear creep in or the, the worry start to come back, pushing it down, it almost makes us more anxious that we can't stop being anxious. And it overwhelms us. It kills us, right? When we just try to go a thousand percent and we think it's just as simple as I just need to do it. No, there's more than just choosing to be something. There's prayer, there's times of solitude, there's living in community, there's doing it alongside other people. That's what will form and shape, shape us. What if becoming a less anxious person, for example, meant that you couldn't look at your phone in the morning for an hour and a half or two hours when you woke up? You just didn't look at your phone at all. 
you started your day with Jesus? What if it meant you turned your phone off at 8 o'clock at night? You didn't look at your phone before bed. You had the last couple hours of the day to process what's happened, to work through the emotions, the things that you felt and experienced. So often the reason we're anxious is because we don't have any time to actually process what in the world we've been going through. We just numb with distractions, with the screen, with the television, and so on. Becoming an anxiety-free person takes years of faithful, committed practice in community. But in 10 years of really putting these things into practice, you might be able to become one of the most non-anxious, Christ-like presences for other people, for whom others would say, this person doesn't worry. Being with them is almost like, it, it just being in their presence ministers to me because there's so little fear, worry, and anxiety. In order to become that kind of person, it's not easy. To become the exception, or rather to make non-anxiety or a non-anxious presence your rule of life and not the exception that you experience every once in a while, it requires both more than we thought or imagined. So all of this is why we're spending the next eight weeks walking through the first chapter of Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're going to do what we've been doing really for the last nine months as a church, which is continue to learn how to live life together as a local church, right? We started off in the fall in Psalms. We looked at Ecclesiastes. We had this personal renewal or how, how do we change? How do we grow? Some of this stuff we've covered a bit. Um, corporate renewal, the book of Ruth, and now we're looking at Ephesians 4. All different texts, all have different themes, different things that it brings to the fore, but but really, the way that we as a leadership have approached each of these books and these texts is really to say, what does it look like for this local church that's been through a lot in the last decade to grow in becoming like the body of Christ that we see in Ephesians? And that's why we're kind of, we're getting to Ephesians 4. But in each one of those books, we're asking that same question. And a lot of our sermons are centered around that idea. I love this quote from uh, late author and theologian Eugene Peterson. He says that following Jesus or living a Christian life is like having a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. It's choosing to, obe to be obedient to Jesus for the long haul alongside other people through the ups and downs of life. Muriel Cook is proof of that long obedience to Jesus, to his church, to his way of life, that doing those things does lead to transformation. You don't have over a hundred women stand up at your memorial service and say they've been counseled and prayed for and loved by someone extraordinary unless you did things that other people weren't willing to do. Right? You, your way of life had to be different. When Muriel retired and her peers retired, she didn't go into watching television five hours a day, watching reruns of the news. So depressing. Don't do that. Right? She chose to actively pursue other women, 
literally writing letters daily to other ladies to encourage them. Spend time in prayer, right? She oriented her life in a certain way. It wasn't just that she knew her Bible, though she did know her Bible and loved her Bible well. Right? Right, Norm? Like, it's more than just that, though. It's choosing to do things to live in a way that others aren't willing to live. So, we want to see, we want it to be normal to see Hesed kindness practiced towards one another and towards our neighbors in the intimacy of relationship here at Central Bible Church. And you can't fake it. In order to become that kind of person, you can't spend three to six hours a day watching TV or the news or Netflix. Practicing the presence of God becomes the first and primary way we experience life. That's what Comer said. Practicing the presence of God, we want it to become the first and primary way we experience life. Think about the central theme of the book of Ruth. It's the interplay, right, between divine action and human choice. This is what I touched on last week, which is that the Holy Spirit, or the presence of God, that that is what connects God's movement and our willingness to seize his opportunities that he gives us. And that's a huge part of how we practice Hesed love. It's a huge part of how we practice Ephesians 4 and recognizing and listening to the Holy Spirit and intentionally choosing to seek him and to love him and to hear him. So I want us to end our time this morning by reading Ephesians 4 together. Okay? If you'd like, if it's more beneficial for you to just listen, close your eyes, I invite you to do that. We'll have the passage up on the screen. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to open your Bible. But if you'd like to read along and you don't have one, we'll have the passage up on the slides. This is where we're going to be camping for the next eight weeks. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1 and we'll read through the whole thing together. Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended, higher than all the heavens, in order to fill the whole universe. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ." 
Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you have heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And just for a moment, I wanted to say that that's a beautiful, that's exactly what we've been talking about this whole sermon. The last two weeks has been this idea, be renewed in the renewing of your minds, be transformed. Yes, it's intellect, it's understanding the Bible, but it's also putting on the new man that you've been given in Christ, practicing the ways of Jesus. Verse 25, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may, be, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Pray with me. Jesus, your word is rich. It is life-giving. God, we not only want to know and understand the complexities of Paul's writing here, but what you're saying to us, but, but we want to live. I mean, we want to be people for who it's just normal to desire kindness and being compassionate towards others who see the, the, those who are on the margins. We don't, have to, we don't have to bend over backwards. It doesn't kill us to try to do those things. It just becomes natural for us. But God, in order for that to happen, we have to choose to orient our loves and our habits around your way of life, the way that you, Jesus, give to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to become the kinds of people who are willing, who are willing to be brave, 
who will choose to have the courage to leave behind the distractions that our world, that the Western world wants to, to numb us with. God, we, we, we so quickly run to those things because God, more, there's more asked of us in the Christian life than we thought, but there's also, once we begin to practice those ways that you've given us and to live like you, it's more life-giving than we ever thought possible. And if we would just take those steps, Lord, would you help us to become the kinds of people who are willing to take those steps? God, I thank you that you, Jesus, did take those steps. That you came and gave yourself to us, showing us what it's like. That you gave yourself for us and guaranteed that the Holy Spirit, the very mind of Christ, would be in us. That we might be able to do the things you talk about. So would you give us hope? Would you begin, Lord, to transform us as you've been doing in the book of Ephesians as we move forward these next eight weeks? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take communion now. I want to invite you to, to the table. If you call Jesus your, your Lord and Savior, take the bread and the cup. I want to invite you to just Pray with a couple of people. We won't have the music super loud. Pray with a couple of people that not just that we would become people who practice Hesed love, but that we would be willing, be the kinds of people who are brave enough to put off some of the things and distractions and habits that hold us back from really living like Jesus has called us to live. I think so often we think of our faith as Christians as what do I need to stop doing? Right? What do I need to abstain from? That's the Christian life. It's like, no. It's actually so much more. What do I need to begin doing? And, and once I figure that out, then I can look at those other areas of life and go, okay, if I'm not going to be an anxious person, I can't start my day on my phone. I can't end my day on Netflix. I have to be willing to put those things aside and to spend time in solitude, meditating on his word, in community with one another. So let's be those kinds of people. Love you guys. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.